one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1302, recorded the week of Monday, April 5th, 2021. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. I've been chomping on the bit to get everything started here, Sawyer, so so let's go. I'm ready and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Yeah, I just want to say something different to our listeners far and wide. Thanks for joining us. Ooh, I like that. That was very nice. Uh, speaking of listeners far and wide, Kat Robinson is unfortunately unable to join us tonight. Hopefully she'll be back with us in the next episode, though, as she continues her adventure down under. Kat, we miss you. Hopefully you're feeling better next time. All right, so let's kick things off with some crew spaceflight here. So we will begin with the most recent launch, which hopefully by the time this episode is released, there will be three new crew members aboard the International Space Station as the Soyuz MS-18 gets ready to lift off from Kazakhstan. That launch is scheduled for Friday, April 9th. At 3.42 a.m. Eastern Time, that's 12.42 p.m. Kazakhstan Time, as they launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, it will be a two-orbit, only three-hour journey to the space station for crews Oleg Novitsky, uh, Pyotr Dubrov, and the last-minute addition, NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei. Yeah, so Mark Vandehei was sort of a, a last, a last-minute shot at this and the whole reason uh really is to ensure that there is a u.s presence on the international space station it's got nothing to do with the confidence in the commercial crew system it's got nothing to do with the confidence in spacex's ability to go ahead and get uh, crew to the international space station it's got nothing everybody has total faith in in the crew dragon system it's got more to do with making sure that the united states always has a presence on the international space station because as you know uh just this past week we had uh the relocation of the uh, uh resilience spacecraft and if you recall all four astronauts had to be on board and I mean, all it was was just, you know, going from one docking port to another docking port on the International Space Station. Not a big deal. The Russians have done that all the time. But it was a first for us because we've never had a capsule on the International Space Station before. And we have never performed this relocation maneuver before. But um, we we went ahead. We got all four 
crew members on board and redocked uh, the resilient spacecraft with uh, with no issue. But all four crew members had to be on board. The reason is, is that if you couldn't redock with the space station, everybody on that that increment has got to come back down because that's their ride home. Resilience is their ride home. So uh, you want to make sure that you always have somebody on, you know, on a Soyuz flight. So then this way you always have a United States presence on the International Space Station. It's got nothing to do with with any of the confidence level on the on on Crew Dragon whatsoever. So I, I, I just want to go ahead and get that out there. Nor does it have any reflection on the confidence of uh, Boeing Starliner or anything like that or any of the commercial crew partners. So I just want to get that out there because I saw a lot of lot of that running around. And just so everyone's aware, for the current expedition, which I believe is Expedition 64, there are currently three crew members up there that arrived on the Soyuz, and the only American among them is NASA astronaut Kate Rubens. Otherwise, it is uh, Sergei Ryshikov and uh, Sergei Kudsverchikov, uh who are up there right now. And then, of course, there are the four astronauts, as you mentioned, aboard the Crew Dragon, Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shanner Walker, and JAXA astronaut Suichi Noguchi. Yeah, and again, Sawyer, um, that's one of the reasons why... Uh, uh uh, Rubens was going ahead and watching this whole maneuver from the cupola on, on the space station. She was one, the lone U.S. astronaut that could make that observation and and make sure that things were going okay from her vantage point because her ride is the Soyuz on board um, on board the space station. So she wasn't at at at, at risk at all from you know having to come back if anything went wrong with the re- relocation uh deal in fact again to reiterate um you had you, you even had i if, if i recall exactly you even had recovery ships standing by in the event that um the relocation didn't go well and they had to retreat and come back home so um if that indeed did happen then you know uh Rubens would be the only uh, American on board the International Space Station. But again, that guarantees that there is always an American on board the ISS at all times. And that's what I think NASA is trying to ensure. Exactly. I mean, that is the main reason for it, especially because, like you said, if anything happens with that crew dragon, you'll need one person there because there will be a point coming up where there will be a different crew dragon up there and they may have to remaneuver it. And that would be the Crew 2 mission, which Mm -hmm. as of right now is currently scheduled to launch from Launch Complex 39A on April 22nd. There'll be a nice early morning launch about 20 minutes before sunrise, bringing up the next crew of four to the International Space Station. Yeah, and I believe uh, they're going to... I believe, Sawyer, the, the game plan is to have Crew 2 there and Crew 1 there simultaneously for about a week, a little bit, to just kind of like have a have a handoff, and uh, and then uh, Crew 1 comes uh, comes back home. Um, so, uh, again, this is, this is another first for, for the United States and a, a nice first for SpaceX too. You're going to have two, um, two crew dragons on ISS for a little while. 
and uh, I don't believe that's ever occurred before. Uh, so you're you're it's it's just a, a again a confidence in in the system, and and they they are getting more and more confidence in in their spacecraft, and uh, uh, I'm you know salute to them. They're they're really really trying to make this this new new system and this new you know this new way of doing things work and uh having both uh, resilience and uh an endeavor back uh in the saddle again so to speak uh will be a a great first and a great uh, uh feather in in the company's cap so i applaud them for that Absolutely. Yes. If in case you're wondering why Endeavor sounds familiar, that's because it's the exact same capsule that launched the uh, Demo 2 mission uh, last year. I believe that was in May, at the end of May in 2020. And uh, the other cool thing is there is a photo of the four crew members who I believe I forgot to mention are uh, Shane Kimbrough, Megan MacArthur, Akihiko Hoshide and Thomas Pesquet, uh, the latter from JAXA mm-hmm. and ESA, respectively. Um, there is a photo of them actually running their fingers and marking their initials in the soot on their first stage booster that will be launching their spacecraft. Yeah, I w- and I'm kind of curious. And um, oh gosh, darn it! This was this was mentioned on Twitter too. Um, I'm kind of wondering if that's going to be sort of uh, a new tradition uh, that. Uh, uh, is is being put together because there's there's so many new n- there's so many new traditions that are coming up as a result of uh, of of commercial crew and I'm wondering now if if this is going to be a a new tradition for uh, for each crew member to go ahead and put their initials on the booster in in the in the soot of the last mission now uh, that is the same booster I believe Sawyer that was used for Crew One correct and, yep. And uh, that that is um, so. This is going to be the first time it is going to be reused, um, but it will be used to uh, again launch uh, launch a human crew. So um, I, I, more and more, um, you know, thumbs up for the company and 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 trying to uh, make sure that uh, everything goes well. So uh, again, saluting SpaceX here for a little bit. Exactly. And in fact, uh, fun fact, booster 1061, which is the number of the booster, it will soon be 1061.2 after its second flight, uh, is currently only scheduled to launch crew missions. It's the one one of the ones that has the special NASA insignia that they've been putting on. Uh, this one, though, on the interstage. And uh, it is it launched crew one. It is also scheduled to launch crew two and inspiration for all this year. So it's going to be a busy booster. Indeed, indeed, and uh, it will, it looks like too they're they're saving it just for human flight. So um, they, I guess they really really want to make sure that if they're going to reuse it, that everybody knows that this is the one that's going to fly people. So you know we really got to take good care of it. Flight proven, exactly. And again, that's that's the thing. They're not necessarily reused, but flight proven, I believe, is the preferred term. So that's what it's- we will use as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it you know it, it's like the difference between used cars and and certified pre-owned, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get technical, but I, I mean they take good care of it. That's what matters. They've been reusing these things left and right, and they've all knock on wood been flying as smooth as they can. So I mean, 
Heck, we, we had another launch on the day of this recording. We're recording April 7th. There was a launch even. So uh, yeah. all smooth so far for uh, SpaceX. Keep on keeping on, guys. Exactly. And speaking of keep on keeping on, NASA's Perseverance rover is keeping on on the Red Planet and has now got its wheels and tires moving. And uh, as it was moving away, it happened to drop off a little package on the surface of Mars. And that package just happened to be the Ingenuity helicopter ahead of its first flight. So first major milestone, it survived a couple days now on the surface of Mars, on its own, which now I believe gives it 31 days from when it was dropped off to perform as many flights as it can, and that first one is hopefully within the next week of us recording this. Yeah, so here are just some specifics about the spacecraft itself. Uh, first, this is kind of, I know I know JPL has kind of looked at this as if, you know, it was, was a Wright Brothers moment, and indeed... It is. In fact, if I recall exactly, there is a piece of the Wright Brothers flyer on this particular little spacecraft. So that that's kind of a, a, a neat uh, neat addition to it. The spacecraft itself weighs about four pounds or um, 1.8 kilos if anybody's listening abroad. Um, and it's about uh, 1.5 pounds or 0 0.68 kilos on Mars. Um, its height is only about uh, a little over uh, a foot and a half, or uh, 0.49 meters, 0 0.49 meters. I'm reading directly from the press kit here. Um, the rotors, are four, are, there are four of them on, on the spacecraft. They're made of a carbon fiber blade arranged in two foot, four foot long, or 1.2 meter long, counter-rotating motors that spin at about uh, 2,400 RPM. Um, the fuselage is small. It's only about 5.4 inches by about 7.7 .7 by 6.4 inches. And um, there are four carbon composite landing legs, each about uh, a little over a foot long, or about 0 0.384 meters long. Um, and it gives the, the little helicopter about maybe five inches or 13 centimeters clearance above the ground. It's powered by a small solar array on top of the rotor system, and it charges um, six lithium-ion batteries. Now, there are two cameras on the spacecraft. One is a, a color uh, with a horizon-facing view for terrain images, and the other one is a black-and-white uh, cameras strictly for navigational purposes. Um, I believe the uh, program that they have put in place here indicates that it's really not going to fly all that high for the first flight. Um, it's really going to go only about uh, uh, five meters or about 15 feet high in altitude and maybe travel about um, 160 feet or about 50 meters downrange and back to the starting area from whence it came. But uh, this, again, is a huge deal. I want to go ahead and s because it is the first time we're flying something on another planet. It is the first time that we're take the human beings are kind of, you know, leaving their, their uh, testing their flight skills on another world. 
and uh, uh, so this this really you know I I know I keep on saying this but it is it's it's huge um, it really is but one thing I do want to bring back home is that this is a test flight this is this is a technical demo mission for ingenuity you know anything's liable to happen this thing has been tested here on earth in a Mars simulated environment but it's never flown before so we don't really know what's going to happen it may work it may not it's it's kind of akin to the if anybody remembers their history the Sojourner rover the very first uh, uh, rover we sent to Mars that too was a tech demo and it worked like a charm in fact um, that's the whole reason why we have the these two super rovers there curiosity and now perseverance so uh, it's this is going to be exciting it's going to be an exciting monday morning i personally am looking forward to it and i'm wishing the whole team well because if this really does work it's going to signal other possibilities that we can use such technology uh on on mars going forward It, it it can open the door for so much um for later flights and i'm sure too that the dragonfly team uh, as Dragonfly is a drone that we are sending to Titan in uh, the not too distant future, um, I'm sure they are looking at this, and they're thinking, okay, what can we learn from this flight? And I'm sure that the Ingenuity team and the dra- um, Dragonfly team are kind of combining forces and taking a look. So, gee, can we? Do we need to make any changes in our design based on what we're learning from Ingenuity? But also, too, I'm thinking for the future when humans finally get there. This this thing can go into places where we can't. Uh, I can see, you know, offshoots of this thing going through Mariner Valley and, and somebody um, operating this... Uh, this drone flying it through Mariner Valley and getting some grand images. Or as somebody else had pointed out, I believe it was um, during the uh, uh, during the uh, uh, landing of Perseverance a few weeks ago, uh, if Ingenuity works out, you can actually use it for uh, long-range communications. You, see, you can go ahead and launch this thing, bounce radio signals off of it, and uh, continue to have uninterrupted communications with say an expedition so there are so many possibilities for this thing going forward in the future and it's going to be exciting but everything's uh all hinging on that early monday morning flight going really really well yeah no pressure right (laughs) no pressure at all (laughs) Uh, but yes, uh, hopefully we'll get some good hops out of it. And like you said, this would be a great stepping stone for future farther flights on Mars. Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, Sawyer, I, uh, and, and Mark, I, I, I don't know how, how you feel about it, but um, having that little piece of the right flyer on this thing is just such a, it, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Uh, to me, the most interesting part of it is what it would hold for the future, because uh, being able to move about a planet under 
under power and not rely on uh, a wheeled conveyance. That's that's exciting in its own its own way. Yeah, indeed. And I'm I'm kind of wondering too if if it works here. I know the moon does not have an atmosphere like this, but I'm wondering too because I know at some point in the Apollo program there was some talk about doing something like this, and. Uh, I'm just wondering if if that opens that on the moon. Now, I know you'd have to think about that a little bit more because um, there's no, you know, there's no air, uh, you know, or the, or the atmosphere is extraordinarily tenuous. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if, if this has a lunar application. Somebody somebody smarter than me knows the answer to that question. But uh, you're right, Mark. I, I think the 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 future of this is really going to be exciting. I'd say for the moon, they want to get a segue. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Now, isn't that an image? All right. Uh, so while we're talking about NASA here, before we go off into uh, our next tangent, I, I do want to mention that NASA now has an official new administrator and that is uh, former astronaut, I guess you could say, and uh, former member up on Capitol Hill, Bill Nelson. Well, he's not there yet. Um, the I believe the hearing for his um, his appointment is scheduled for April twenty eighth. So uh, he's not. He's he's right now the designee. He has not been been told to come into the door just yet um I, i'm thinking of uh of of how contentious he was toward jim bridenstine and um you know how he was taking uh mr bridenstine to to task on on his stewardship of the uh, the stafford museum over in oklahoma and a few other things and um uh, you know, Bridenstine's stance on, on, on climate and all this. And, um, so I'm wondering now if, if, if he is, how he is going to deal with, with, the, with that situation, um, to correct you a little bit, to, to put the, the, the astronaut thing to bed a little bit. He was a payload specialist, um, not a career astronaut. I want to go ahead and, because there, there's been some confusion on that point. Um, even one of, one of our, our, our past panelists had a, had a bit of a, a confusion on that point here. Um, the uh, Nelson was not a member of the astronaut corps. Uh, he was what the in the space shuttle days they called a payload specialist. Essentially, he was in a group of uh, folks that could be designated um, if. It's sort of like 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 the the system that that they want to go ahead and reincarnate for for spaceflight here today, where you're not really a career astronaut, but you're you're visiting here because you've got a purpose to be here, and so on and so on and so on. A semi-civilian um, spacefarer. That's correct. Um, Charlie Walker, 
was a uh, a payload space specialist. Another gentleman who came from here in New Jersey, I believe his name is Ron Seneker. He was also a payload specialist. Both of those folks had had business to do because they had experiments specifically to perform. Greg Jarvis, God bless him, who we lost on STS-51L, was a payload specialist. Um, Chris McAuliffe, same thing. She had that that designation as well. Um, so uh, they were not career astronauts, but they had you know some purpose to be there, and a, and some company was was preparing you know it was paying for them to be there. Although in McAuliffe's case, she was a um, you know, a guest of the uh, of the uh, uh, U.S. government, and ditto with uh, Bill Nelson and Jake Garn as well. In fact, uh, Mike Mullane has got an, in, some interesting <laughs> in his book. He had some interesting observations about that entire uh, affair, and I'm not going to get into that because some of it was was unkind to to Mr. Nelson because he he wanted to. One of the things he wanted to do was um, he wanted to be part of the mission. He wanted to go ahead and, and be involved in the experiments and so on and so forth. Um, whereas Jake Garn had sort of an ancillary ro- role. He was basically the, the guinea pig for a lot of medical experiments and did some uh, photography uh, and, and, and some photographic analysis and, and Earth observations from from the shuttle. And Garn didn't want... I mean... Uh, uh, Bill Nelson didn't want to do that. He really wanted to have hands-on um, used to the experiments, and and that alarmed a lot of a lot of people <laughs> um, uh, to the point where uh, I believe the uh, Hoot Gibson had to go ahead and uh, put his foot down and basically say that don't worry, the only people that will be touching their experiments will be trained career astronauts, and that kind of put that whole thing to bed. But um, to uh, to go ahead and 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 continue, uh, it, it's it's going to be an interesting little role reversal on this. But um, do I think he's the right person for the job? We will see. Uh, I I still have some reservations, but um, I personally think that he also knows where a lot of the. Uh, the levers are in DC, obviously, because of his experience on the Hill for all those years. He knows people right and left. He knows what buttons to press. He knows how to get things done in DC. And we saw with Jim Bridenstine, um, somebody that kind of also knew where all the levers were and knew how to get things done in DC. So, I think this is kind of a good signal in a way. And one thing I, I would like to point out that's also a good signal is that Jim Bridenstine has expressed his support for Bill Nelson to take over the role as well. Yes, exactly. And, um, I mean, everybody was worried about him, what he was going to be doing. He's, he's. I think he's now on the board of VSAT, and I think he's um, also on on, uh, on another, another board now. Um the um, uh, that particular satellite company has got a different, you know, has got an internet. Um, they're they're more also into satellite based internet, and they have a different approach than uh, SpaceX does. And uh, Bridenstine kind of likes that approach. Um, and 
but he really, really wants to champion um, infrastructure in that respect, meaning that that uh, to get uh, you know more satellite coverage um, in more areas that really, really need it, and he's hoping to to champion that um, through through that board. So, but um, anyway, moving right along with, with Bill Nelson's appointment. He and also uh, uh, President Biden, I believe, are pretty good, uh, pretty good friends. So, and uh, Nelson is also a uh, a champion of of the current pathway that we are taking right now. Um, he really doesn't want to deviate. I know there was a a letter, and I'll, I'll bring this up now. But there was a letter. Uh, from uh, Bernice Johnson, who is the, I believe, the chair of the uh, um, House um, Science Committee. And uh, she was basically urging uh, the president not to proceed with the HLS selections because uh, she felt that uh, we shouldn't even be going down this paradigm, you know, of, of having companies going, going ahead and building the landers and then owning the landers, you know, the way uh, we did with commercial crew and commercial cargo, she felt that that was not the way to go and NASA should go the traditional path the way we did with Apollo, which is where NASA owned the lander and, and was totally responsible for it. Um, my opinion is that that ship has sailed, and if we go ahead and reverse course on that, um, it would be detrimental. Um, and we would never get to the moon at this point. Um, and I think Bill Nelson understands that too. And I think a lot of people on the Hill understand that. So they don't really want to do that. And I think there, there's a lot of support, thankfully, for what's going on. And uh, I think because Bill Nelson's there, um, I think that support will be just, you know, essentially buttressed. And, uh, um, I think we're on the right path. Um, some folks have uh, uh, some differences of opinion on that, um, but we will see. I think I'm, I'm going to take a wait-and-see uh, approach to this. Um, I'm encouraged, but um, we'll see what happens. Um, I have a feeling the the, uh, the appointment and the the uh, is is a done deal. I think he's probably going to get the get the nod from from the uh, after the hearing, and uh, uh, will probably assume command at NASA. And um, I'm wondering too because um, after I'm just going to throw this out there after even after uh, Jim Bridenstine kind of got that third degree from Bill Nelson and Sawyer, as you pointed out. Um, you know, Bridenstine is excited by Nelson's possible ascendance to his old job. Um, Bridenstine went ahead and named Bill Nelson after he lost lost the uh, the election in Florida to uh, the uh, the national the NASA Advisory Council. So that kind of signaled, you know, hey, you know, he he may give me a hard time, but he's got a lot of knowledge, and he's got a lot of background that could really, really help us. And I think that's really the key. Nelson, you know, regardless of 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 the past, he's got a lot of knowledge. He's got a good background. He's got a firm understanding of of what the current path is, and I think he will do 
pretty well in that position over at uh, over at NASA headquarters. And if you recall, when it comes to the announcement of Jim Bridenstine about four years ago now, which is crazy to think how long that's been. Um, But I remember we were discussing on this very show of this is a not great idea. He doesn't really have a lot of background. He's just got money. And and turns out he was, in my opinion, one of the better NASA administrators that we've had. He got a lot done in four years and it was the we ended the conversation saying well we'll wait and see and boy did he prove us wrong so i think like you just said the perfect thing to say is let's wait and see and uh if it's anything like it was the last four years i think we're in for some good times yeah so i mean i'll i'll be honest back then uh, if 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 anybody wants to play it back and i'll i'll if my memory serves and I was on the fence. I thought that, again, you know, having a politician in charge over at NASA was not a good thing. But I recall Jim Webb was an attorney. And he turned out to be one of the best NASA administrators on record. Um, Jim Bridenstine was was now a recovering politician. And he turned out to be, in the short tenure that he was there, um, one of the, the best administrators NASA had. He've, he moved the needle, if, if anybody could. And to be honest with you, Bill Nelson's got, you know, he's got some big shoes to fill. But I think he's up to it. Um, and I think, too, he may be one of those individuals that will indeed move the needle. But again, we'll, we'll wait and see. I'm encouraged, but we'll wait and see. Exactly. He has the clout. The question is, see, he can walk the walk. Can he talk the talk? Fingers crossed. Exactly. Uh, so now we're going to switch over from the public sector to the private sector here and talk a little bit about SpaceX. Uh, one interesting thing of note with SpaceX kind of relates a little bit to the launch that occurred today, which was uh, L23 for Starlink. Um, we're not going to, I don't want to discuss the Starlink network or anything like that <laughs> at the moment. But the one thing I do want to mention is if anyone was listening to the webcast, there was a very interesting choice of wording as they discussed the. Uh, recovery ship for the payload fairings, which were previously flown, and they were going to be recovered by a contracted recovery ship, was the wording that they used. Normally, they would use their two contracted recovery ships, well, not contracted, they owned them, Miss Tree and Miss Chief, of which it took me way too long to realize they were named that because if you say it real fast, it's Mystery and Mischief. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of my uh, inability to read there. Um, both of those ships have now been decommissioned. Their recovery arms, which at one point held a net to catch the fairings, which had parachuted back down, were removed and taken apart. And I believe the ships are being sent back to their original owners. And this raises the question of... Is it because it costs too much to have those ships? Are they upgrading them for different ships? Are they going to stick with just the wet recovery, as in they're going to fish them out of the ocean like they did this time? Or are they realizing now that maybe recovering the payload fairings isn't as lucrative as it is just recovering the first stage? 
Sawyer, that is only a question that SpaceX can answer. Um, I don't think they are going to give us one. Um, we will know in the future if they continue to contract that work out. But again, I think maybe um, it was one of the things I, I pointed out, I believe, early on and uh, it was that to just to run back to the shuttle program for a moment, NASA had those two recovery ships that would go out and get the SRBs and bring the parachutes back and all that. It was always a tradition to welcome back the solid rocket boosters, you know, through the lock and and so on. If I recall, it was Liberty Star and Freedom Star. That's correct. And thank you. Uh, you just you just jogged my memory. Um, those you know vessels were also decommissioned after the shuttle program and it's also one of the reasons why we're not recovering uh the boosters on the space launch system it's just you know it it, it doesn't it, it's too expensive to do all the time because you've got to you know it, it everybody says oh well reusability 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 you still have to pay for the cost of the maintenance of those vessels. You have to pay for the the crews, their salaries, even when you know it may be a part time thing. I don't know, but you still have to go ahead and make sure that those boats are in still in tip top shape all the time, and that costs money. And paying a crew costs money, and if they are a full time crew, it. You know, you've got to pay them accordingly, benefits and all that, and that costs money. So I, I think finally people are, are may have wised up and said, hey, you know, maybe we can either contract this out somehow or, you know, maybe we shouldn't hang in there with our, with our whole fleet and, and, you know, do this stuff on our own. Maybe we can just simply farm it out to somebody else and and it might be cheaper that way. I don't know. Yeah, it um, might end up just being cheaper to say, you know what, we've got these big giant boats with these big giant arms, we can get a much smaller boat for a lot cheaper with fewer people, and say a dragnet like you would use to catch fish, except you catch fairings instead, and you pull them out of the water, and again, uh, we don't know the re the cost of refurbishment on the payload fairings. We know, obviously, it's working well enough on the first stage that they continue to reuse these vehicles seven, eight, nine plus times now. Uh, we don't know that for sure about the fairings, so. Yeah, exactly, and I don't know what the what the life is on on a fairing. I don't. I couldn't tell you. Neither do I. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know what the expected lifetime of that is. I don't know how much it costs to, to operate those two ships. Um, and I don't really know how much it costs to charter a crew to go ahead and fish these things out of the ocean. Uh, that is just, you know, that's something, you know, SpaceX has to go ahead and, and, and kind of go into. I mean, I could find out how much it, it would cost to, to do such an operation, you know, if if I lived in in the Florida area and I knew who to who to make some phone calls with, but um, I think maybe they're catching on and realizing that hey, we don't need all this infrastructure. We can farm it out to somebody in 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 the Florida area or 
you know, does it really pay to go ahead and recover the fairings at this point, or do we just kind of let them kind of be? So, I don't know. That that that's I, I don't know where where SpaceX is on their on their thought patterns on that one, and I'm not even going to try to get into the machinations there. So here you go, hypothetical phone call. SpaceX phone rings, and they have someone on the other end that says, "Hey, I know this guy with a boat." You want his number? <laughs> yeah, maybe. It may be just as simple as that. Who knows? I mean, again, this ship was not one of their own that they used today, or on today's recording date at least. So we'll see if they do it again. And and if they do it again, it might be an indication that, that they're saying, you know, we don't need all of this infrastructure. We we can just farm it out to one of the local guys and, and and see how that works. And if it becomes too doesn't become cost effective to them, I'm sure they'll just say, you know, the heck with it. So we'll just have to see. Well, Let's stick with SpaceX a little bit, except uh, we're going to take our phone calls away from Florida and bring them to Boca Chica or Starbase, depending on who you ask, Texas. Uh, and the, <laughs> the launch of SN11, that is the Starship serial number 11 uh, prototype. And uh, if you watch the webcast, well, you didn't see much until it cleared through the fog. Uh, it lifted off on a very foggy morning in Boca Chica, Texas, went up its 10 kilometers, did its belly flop, and just as it was about to relight its engines, all of a sudden, the cameras cut off on the webcast. Uh, some secondary webcasts from other people, including uh, NASA Spaceflight and Everyday Astronaut, managed to capture pieces of debris raining down near their remote cameras, more so than we've seen previously in any of the explosions related to SN8 nine or ten after its semi-successful landing um this was quite unusual so when you ask what happened with eight nine and ten a lot of amateurs were instantly analyzing the video footage immediately after it happened and most people could determine within a few days hey here's what happened it was not as easy considering there was pretty much zero visibility on launch day and gene i know you and i have been talking about this briefly offline saving our main comments for tonight so i'll let you have first crack at it oh well you sure about that (laughs) well uh to all of our spacex fan listeners apologies in advance um no apologies i'm i'm gonna just say what i feel here um this was showbiz plain and simple um First off, I was following the SpaceX feed, and I did not see it in real time. I will admit that. I was committed to another uh, conference and another event, which we'll get into a little later. But um, I, I saw it um, on, on, on playback on the SpaceX side. I did not see the NASA spaceflight footage or the everyday astronaut footage but i i want i kind of all right for lack of a better phrase i kind of zabrutered the the spacex launch and i sat there and i was waiting for a scrub to be honest with you i couldn't see anything through the pea soup 
that was the fog surrounding Boca Chica that that morning, and um, I, I I I I really expected to hear scrub. Now I'm gonna I'm going back, and this is really going to be a ridiculous analogy, but gosh darn it, I I think it applies. I'm going to go back to my own little days when I was, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, launching these little balsa wood rockets. And after, you know, building my own kits and so on, I'd go ahead and try my hand at my own designs and and try to see how well they would fly. And I would go through all the testing and all of that. But when it came to launch day, I made sure that at least for a first flight or for a flight where I was really trying to watch the vehicle as it behaved, I had a cl- it was a clear day, calm wind. And I didn't have cuz I I didn't have the the luxury of downlink and telemetry and all that. The only thing I had, you know, as far as all of that was a small little tracking uh, device that I used to go ahead and and calculate the the distance that it would fly. Um, so I really needed a clear line of sight um, as as the vehicle went up, just to observe how it would behave. And because gosh darn it, if I lost it in 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 the adjoining bay over there, I'd want to know why. Now, grant you, in this instance, you have um, you've got all of the downlink, all of the telemetry, all of that, and before anybody goes ahead and makes the analog of Vandenberg, that's different. Uh, they have you know certain you know fog limitations and so on and so forth over there, so they can also kind of observe the vehicle going up once it clears clears the fog deck, but. Also, um, those are tried and true launch vehicles. We pretty much know what to expect from them and, and all of that. So if you go down to Vandenberg and hear, hear a good launch, you know, fine. But this isn't, that isn't a test program. This is. And during a test program, you really want to see what's happening so you can go ahead and take your photography and corroborate it with what is going on in your telemetry. I'm going to go, I'm going to bring back the ghost of STS-51L, and one of the things they relied on a lot in that accident investigation, the same thing with STS-107, is the photography and the telemetry. They went ahead and they looked looked at that on every launch that that is done by NASA. They have photographic analysts looking at this thing, making sure that everything is going according to plan. You don't see anything weird going on or anything like that. You couldn't do that with SN11 because you couldn't see in front of your face. In fact, I believe the only time it was able to go ahead and break the cloud deck, okay, I think only one photographer, um, and gosh darn it, you know, I apologize, his name just ran and hid. Was it um, Trevor Malnahan? Thank you. Um, that was it. 
he was the only one that was able to go ahead and get a clean shot of this thing as it was doing its thing. And he got the, the, the pitch down maneuver at least. Um, and, and that was pretty much it. Now, to go back to, to the, the SpaceX feed, as you said, Sawyer, the coverage seemed to, from the, from the onboard cameras stopped, I believe, at 5 minutes 49 seconds. There was just, you know, a, a, a quietness about it at that point, and then all of a sudden, a large bang. Um, and I was like, okay, that's where it happened. But they didn't cut back to the launch pad. They they stayed on that frozen screen at the five minute forty nine second point, with you know the engines firing and 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 that was it. Um, and the commentator John Unsberger was basically saying, you know, well, you know, another exciting launch, and I'm like, yeah, but. You lot no, you know, acknowledgement. The only acknowledgement we got was like, well, we it's just not coming back, so don't worry about that. Don't stay. And I'm like, wait a minute. You have loss of vehicle <laughs> here. And everybody's saying, oh, well, another exciting launch. Yay. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, there's no announcement in the surrounding area that there could be debris on the field and this debris could be going ahead and be contaminated in some way and you may not want to touch it in any way, shape or form. So if you're looking to go ahead and and find this debris on, you know, and, and put it on eBay, don't, you know, don't even touch the stupid stuff. And there weren't any, you know, as far as I know, there was no, you know, announcement at least on on the SpaceX feed um, that you shouldn't go anywhere near it. Because I remember after um, Orb Three and Sawyer, Mark, I believe you were in there for for that program as well when we went there. Um, the NASA had a number to to call and basically saying, "Hey, if you find debris, you know, don't touch it. Call us here." And, um, we'll go over, we'll, we'll take our, you know, we'll, we'll take photography and we'll get it out of there, but, you know, don't touch it yourself because there could be code, you know, nasty coatings on it and things like that. In fact, they even meet all, they even made all the photographers leave their cameras as well, because fun fact, not only were the cameras possibly contaminated, they were evidence. In other words, they had photography they could look at. Exactly. Thank you. You just made my point on on the photography. Um, So I I don't want to say, you know, is is SpaceX smarter than an eight-year-old? In this instance, I don't think so. Because even eight-year-old me understood that you don't launch in a fog on a first flight, and especially during a test flight, when you want all the photography that you can possibly muster or when you want a good visual on the vehicle when you know and and you really need that visual on the vehicle to understand how it's behaving um i i was like what what was what was that 
And somebody, I, I forget who, who it was now, was trying to tell me, oh, they're in a hurry. They have they wanted to go ahead and just get this thing out of the way so they can get to, you know, SN15. And I'm like, well, you know, they, they, they want to get to Mars, so they're in a hurry. And I'm like, well, a couple of days wasn't going to hurt their schedule in any way, shape, or form. You know, I mean, if, if you're going to do the test, get the most out of the test that you can possibly get and that means also getting photography i'm not going to make a lot of friends here but that that that's that's my opinion and and i'm i'm standing with it i'm standing by it okay uh gene i'm going to give you a, a a different perspective perhaps uh i would imagine that if spacex wanted every bit of data they could get from every launch and every activity that they have, they would take the steps to do that. So I have to kind of assume here that what they did get from that launch and others was sufficient for their interest, and going beyond that wasn't something that was a priority for them. The fact that it's a company versus a governmental uh, operation, big, big difference. And I don't think we can expect them to run things like we do NASA. I can I, I will go ahead and and give you that to an extent, but a testing program's a testing program. And if if you really truly want to get the most out of what you're doing, you really do want a visual track, and and that's that's just I'm I'm sticking to that point. The, the 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 other thing too I want to bring up a little bit, and this is not really talked about a lot, um, is how it's impacting the area around Boca Chica, and um, the. Uh, there, I noticed on Facebook and just just in passing, there's a group out there called the Coastal Bird Program, and they have been out there for. Um, they're a nonprofit group. They are looking at um, uh, their their concentration is the South Texas coast, and they're saying that it is it is one of the most unique areas in North America. Um, and renowned for its uh, wildlife and specifically its 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 area in birding, and um, they basically wrote on their Facebook page, "quote The explosion of yet another third so far this year SpaceX rocket prototype showered the metal and potentially toxic debris into far far into the sensitive tidal flats." of the South Bay Coastal Preserve, Boca Chica State Park, and the Lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge. And they show a photograph here of debris littered just about all over the place, right outside the perimeter of um, the SpaceX fence line. And they describe here on the right side of the highway is the SpaceX fence line. And on the left, which is where all the debris is littered, and there's a, a road going through it here, um, is what is historically been one of the single most important sites for wintering of 
piping plovers, and thousands of other shorebirds. Now, for those of you who don't understand the piping plover, that I believe the piping plover is an endangered species. Um, I learned about it while staying over at uh, at Chincoteague, um, and its plight, and they're really, really trying to work to to save the bird. Um, to continue with the uh, the coastal bird program post here, since SpaceX gets county orders to close the highway and beach most weekdays. We, meaning the organization, have had to cut back extensively on monitoring there. Sadly, most news stories about these explosions neglect to mention the excessive damage being done to these highly unique coastal public lands. Close quote. I thought I would just get that in there as a counterpoint point because not a lot of news is going forward about it. And I do know that... Um, you know, to to put this into a, a perspective, the uh, Kennedy Space Center is right dab smack in the middle of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge. You know, and the area is in and around there, and they they have taken great cares to go ahead and make sure that they're not contaminating anything over there. There has been you know issues, environmental issues over there, and NASA has had to go through a lot of pains to go ahead and clean those up. Same thing over at Wallops. There was a, a groundwater issue over there at one point, and I know uh, NASA Wallops has gone through great detail to go ahead and, and try to clear, clean that up because they were kind of responsible for it. I know, too, that when Antares launches from the uh, from Wallops Island, there's a hard and fast rule that if the wind is blowing a certain way, they do not launch. Because if you have a bad day and you have to hit the hit the big red button, you don't want all of the debris going into um, the Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge. So I'm kind of wondering, has SpaceX really, really done? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they did some sort of environmental impact study doing this, but um, did they really do, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's on the whole thing? Because apparently this organization doesn't think they did. I'll bet you they did. I'm sure they've done something and I'm already sure. And I believe I read somewhere that they're doing basically what they did similar to McGregor, Texas, where they're donating a lot of uh, money and school supplies and other items to the Boca Chica and Brownsville communities. It's funny that you mention that, Sawyer, because if you read the posts under there, uh, there's a lot of a lot of that being said. Um, but it's also kind of being said that they kind of feel it's it, it, it's sort of bribery in a way saying hey we're going to mess up your environment but hey here has have have some have some other money and the from the reaction is that well you know um spacex can afford it they can afford basically what what some in in here is is characterizing and this is not me characterizing it this the, these are some individuals that apparently live in the area that are writing under this post and i kind of wish i can link to it um basically saying that this is almost like hush money <laughs> because the you know they feel that that 
that the town fathers are kind of in their pocket and they just don't like what's happening to to the surrounding area. I mean, heck, the the idea of them even renaming it first off right there from Boca Chica to Starbase, little things like that. But I can see how that would be considered as bribery. Now, my big thing with this mission here, if I may, is we are on SN11. SN7 right. was the little star hopper, which worked beautifully. It landed. SN8 was landed way too hard. Okay, first mission... You don't expect it to succeed on the first try. If it does, cool. If not, you've got the second one. SN9. All right. We figured out one issue. They fixed it. Then it came for the flip. It didn't do the flip in time with the single engine. So SN10. Okay. Let's flip with all three Raptor engines. Light them all up. It lands a little too hard. Okay. Maybe improve the landing gear. Maybe a little more engine burn to soften the landing. And you've got it. We are this close micrometers away from finally nailing this and going okay we've got ourselves a working prototype here and then comes sn11 i feel like with each one we should be advancing and of course for the first three for eight nine and ten i will give you it's a test things are not expected to go perfectly that's fine i understand sn11 is also still a test and it's not expected to go perfectly but if you follow the chain of progression it went from big failure to little failure to smaller failures to catastrophic failure. One of these things is not like the other if you follow them sequentially. <laughs> That's my personal thought on that is if you're going to mess up, it shouldn't be this big this far into development. And yes, as we talked about already, there is the argument of, well, SN15 is already being stacked in the high bay. And in case you're wondering what happened to SN12, 13, and 14, there aren't any. SpaceX is skipping <laughs> those and going directly to their next version, their next prototype, which is numbered 15. And I cannot explain for you for the life of me the numbering. Then again, space shuttle numbers were all over the place too. So I will give them a pass on numbering. I will not give them a pass, however, on this major explosion. And again, do they have telemetry? Yes, but I can guarantee you that at some point after that explosion, the telemetry stopped, whereas video keeps rolling. As long as you don't destroy the camera, although they almost did with a few of them, you will have that data to review, whereas the vehicle may stop transmitting. I hate to bring up an analogy of this, but... Like you said, with STS-51L, in particular STS-107, if you read the book about Columbia's final mission that was written, I believe it was uh, Mike... Mike Leinbach. Mike Leinbach, who wrote... Yes. A lot, they talked about, as it was coming back in, they really knew that something was wrong when they saw news reports showing what appeared to be pieces of the shuttle falling apart as it was re-entering over Texas. That was one of their big moments of oh no it's this is how we know it's not just a tire pressure monitoring warning yes yeah, sawyer and and to 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 bring that that ghost back up uh there were photographic analysts looking at the launch so even back as as early as you know flight day two after the photographic analysis individuals had their crack at uh, the launch images they knew something was afoot and they probably actually even knew that, that you know if i remember exactly the history they knew that a 
you know, a, a briefcase size piece of foam had fallen off of that, uh, the the external tank and impacted that side of the wing now nobody really knew knew the severity of the impact but they knew something had occurred and you know so right. yeah i mean and they had multiple, this is what i'm saying multiple different tracking cameras following it even at that high of an altitude on liftoff and regardless you also had the tracking cameras on the ground for its re-entry too some military, some news cameras that happened to catch it, which, again, in the moment, told them all they needed to know to unfortunately lead to some of the worst words, flight, lock the doors. But Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, it, it was, was, that's exactly my point. So if you're really serious about trying to make sure you understand what your vehicle is doing at all given times, you really want an uh, you know atmospheric conditions that are favorable to that, especially in a testing program, and that's why I I I personally think SN11 was showbiz. It was almost like yeah, we, let's get this one out of the way and let's get SN15 out. And I don't even want to know what the numbering <laughs> system is all about, but. I'm not going to go there. But One thing I, I I do have to bring up that we haven't talked about yet, and Mark, I ha uh, we hate to drag you into this knowing your day job, but we ha we can't not address the elephant in the room that is the FAA clearance and the fact that after they violated their launch license on SN8, the FAA, who normally requires regulations to kind of just check in by phone, basically said no. We are going to require that we have one of our regulators at the launch site for every one of your test flights. And that the reason they had to delay a day from Monday to Tuesday of that week was because the person from the FAA flew home to Florida because they were told we're not going to launch. Now, I do have to say, in the defense of SpaceX... They did that evening, Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, have on their website, we are planning Monday for our test. So I don't know who informed the FAA personnel about that, but regardless, they did not give the FAA inspector enough time to turn around and say, oh, never mind, I'm going right back to Texas Monday morning, and instead delay the launch to the foggy Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, that that's... That's another thing, sorry, I'm glad you were brought, brought that up because I was itching to get in, into this. I thought the FAA, in all honesty, got, got short-shrifted by, by the media. A lot of people, including a lot of folks I, I, I actually do have a lot of respect for, were ripping the FAA a new one on that one. And I sat there and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, the, with all due respect, the FAA is not at, you know, Mr. Musk's beck and call. Um, there has to be better communication either through, you know, through channels or whatever between the two entities. Now, I don't know where, you know, the, the communication snafu lays in that, in that particular incident, but a lot of the backlash I thought was, was really inappropriate. I and mean, there was one cartoon out there that, and I don't remember who it it was that drew it. Actually, had you know the 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 USS Enterprise with SpaceX written on the secondary hull, 
and the um, a uh, an indi- you know the FAA in a covered wagon, and the the Enterprise was in front of the covered wagon, and the and the driver of the covered wagon marked FAA was saying giddy up. Um, I mean, I, I thought that was really really unfair. And everybody says, well, you know, they have to have, you know, they, they have to be there. If they have to be there, get a private jet or have somebody, you know, there at Boca Chica 24-7. You know, have a FAA rep, rep there at all times. And I'm like, wait a minute, dude, does the FAA have, you know, the the, the material and have the people to, to you know, for such a thing? Probably not. They're, they're, they're probably busy doing other things. And do they have jets available? Yeah, but, you know, it, it, you have to really give folks time to go ahead and, and charter some such things and get, you know, that apparatus moving. Um, I am going to shut up because I'm sure Mark is jumping at the bit here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know... The FAA is in a in a tough place because, and I'm I'm gonna mention a couple of sources of uh, news stories that I've read, and I think it's essentially correct that the agency is it says here first and foremost required to protect the public health and safety, but we've got the other mandate to encourage, facilitate, and promote the industry. So on one hand, we're a regulator. On the other hand, we're facilitating and promoting the space industry. So it's a difficult place to be in. And another news story I read where there are a dozen safety inspectors that are part of this program for space launch. You don't just go with a staff of 12 and have them at anyone's beck and call. I would suggest that if SpaceX wants somebody there tomorrow, they should send a jet for them because government employees, by and large, don't have that kind of latitude. We're tasked with being responsible for the taxpayer money, and that does not include chartering a business jet to fly us at a at a moment's notice. Um, you know, there's things that are just not realistic. Another thing that bothered me was uh, reading that SpaceX had an issue about something, and they uh, complained about it via Twitter. That's fine. If you've got a cell phone and you're complaining about your cell phone company, if you've got an Internet service provider that you're not getting satisfaction from customer service, you want to go to social media and complain about it, those industries are known for responding to social media because they want to keep their image positive. I don't see where that applies in a grown-up world of 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 spaceflight. Um, you know, I don't have any complaint with SpaceX blowing up rockets if it meets their objectives and if their investors are willing to send them money. Sure, go ahead. Now, the fact that there's a an issue with uh, sensitive uh, environmental areas, you know, that bothers me because you can be a good steward, as as KSC has shown, and have a decades-long space industry and launch industry without destroying, you know, your habitat. So I'm kind of wrapping a whole bunch of stuff in at once. Did I miss anything? 
Mark, I think it, you nailed it. In fact, I, I remember uh, talking to somebody um, offline about all of this and uh, essentially saying, look, if SpaceX wants you know that FAA presence and they're saying they have to be there um, and the FAA wants to be there um, and they want to have somebody there full time, full time, let them pay for it. Let 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 Elon and SpaceX pay for that FAA representative to be there. I would like to point out that six months ago, or probably less than that, I don't remember when we spoke about it, we were talking about the FAA issuing a streamlined launch and reentry licensing requirements rule, SLR2. Right. That was in October. And so the FAA has done some things to improve the regulatory impact of, of the agency on commercial spaceflight, et cetera. And so if there's a problem, let's just work and fine-tune it, find a good solution that works for the regulator as well as for the organization industry regulated. Um, anytime you do something new, anytime you make a major revision to your methodology, it can require some some tuning and some tweaking and and making it work better um there again too i would be willing to bet that much of that faa office is like the impression i get of faa engineers uh and specialists all over the country is that where the agency has the latitude they're putting people in a telework posture rather than being in an office trying to allow employees to be distanced to be safer so that could be part of this story too uh, i'm not saying it is i have no idea it's just that that's another thing that could have an impact on how quick you can respond and get somebody down the road now if they really want to have uh somebody what is it uh USDA, they have inspectors at chicken processing plants. You know, just have somebody sit there. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we could have a tax that would, uh, you know, cover those expenses and those personnel to be there on the spot, twenty four seven. Yeah. Well, my thought is is to you know again, my thought is is if if that is the demand, you know. Maybe that should be baked into the contract. Maybe that should be between SpaceX and and the FAA and and having you know SpaceX pick up the tab. If if that is one of the things, the one thing I don't want to see, and Mark, as you pointed out, you know the the use of Twitter and and complaining, having the company complain about the FAA um, on Twitter. Uh, the last thing I want to see is an adversarial relationship between um, the regulatory body, in this case the FAA, and and the uh, and and SpaceX. That that is the last thing I want because this really should be a partnership. The FAA, as you pointed out, out is just concerned about the the people and property in the area. And, you know, gosh darn it, model rocketry, as, as anybody that's involved in that, from launching the little balsa wood Estes rockets to, um, to high-powered uh, 
uh, rocketry. Uh, they, they there, there's a bunch of FAA rules baked into that 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 we have to follow. And uh, you know, I mean, it's it, and it's all because you want to make sure that people on the ground and property on the ground is protected from the projectile. And and that is is just the, the whole reason why the FAA is there. And Mark, thanks for making the, those points. Um, I'm hoping maybe you know maybe it it, it will take an FAA uh, personnel uh, individual there on on a full time basis. Maybe that's what we need. But the question is, you know, again, who's going to pay for it? Ain't no free lunch. Exactly. So so by the way, I had another thought that I almost forgot about. If uh, if things are too tough for SpaceX to operate there at Boca Chica, Texas, they could always go back to the Kwajalein Atoll in the Pacific and conduct their <laughs> launches there. Um, might not be as near of a uh, might not be as challenging. Yeah, but I'm I'm sure that uh, you know the, the the fact is that you have all the the raw materials right there, um, and, and I'm sure that that that's it may not be cost effective to do, um, you know, I'm just I'm just throwing that one out there, but uh, um, the the you know I I grant you I mean Boca Chica that area was actually being looked at if I recall my history. Um, that was actually one of the first sites NASA was looking at to uh, to get their uh, uh, launch site up and going, and they they did choose Cape Canaveral because of the fact that it wasn't really over a lot of populated areas at that point because you still had adjacent states in the area and so on. Florida was just out there over the, the Atlantic and they thought that was a safer deal. So they went to Florida rather than, uh, than the, the south coast of Texas. And so this isn't really a disclaimer because that always bugs me when I hear those, but I work for the FAA. I'm an electronics technician. I work on communications, navigational aids, weather systems. I don't, I've only shook hands once with one of the upper-level uh, administrators of the uh, FAA commercial space, what they call it, OST. I have trouble remembering the acronyms for it. <laughs> so by no means am I knowledgeable. I'm reading news stories, and I'm throwing my opinion out there, and that's all it amounts to. I, I'd love to be able to speak in a more knowledgeable manner about it. Uh, maybe if I have time for another career, which, uh, oh, boy, that would be tough. Uh, <laughs> You know, maybe I could, maybe I could speak better to these things. Well, you you gave us a, a good good overview, and at least you you gave us a good overview of, uh, of 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 the situation, Mark, and I do appreciate it. Yeah, uh, it's always nice to have that perspective, even if you're not fully in the loop. It's still that separate set of eyes that kind of has a better look at the bureaucracy, for a lack of a better way to put it. And just a disclaimer here, folks, keep in mind that at the beginning of this show, we were applauding SpaceX. We are not by any means, um, you know, trying to bash them in any way, shape or form. We're just saying they could be better at this. That's right. it. 
I mean, the the Falcon 9 is an amazing vehicle. They're reusing it, like I was saying. Right now, I was there for the ninth launch of one of their boosters, which is a record for them. Uh, They're launching crew to the space station. We talked about that. Crew 2 coming up later this month. They're doing amazing things. And again, the Falcon 9 is a really great flight-proven vehicle and it has proven itself to be a workhorse as we've seen now 10 launches so far this year alone from spacex from the falcon 9 this is we understand a test program at least i can say i get that it's a test program however yes you know there's going to be a but there (laughs) however there comes a point when it's just like you're saying when it's for show when it's doing it for the sake of doing it, whether that be to move on to quickly get to SN15 or to do it because they know a lot of people are watching or to do it because they think that the data that they have will be enough, whether it is or it isn't. Regardless, there is absolutely room for improvement. And that is, as Gene mentioned, what we're trying to say here. We do not hate any space company. We want every single one of them to succeed. The more companies we have in space the more we become a spacefaring not only just nation but a spacefaring planet and civilization the better humanity is so i'm just gonna leave it at that for me sawyer thanks that's what we're advocating here we're not we're we're, it's it's just a case of tough love and that's it i gotta i gotta go backwards again sorry about this but (laughs) another another aspect of this is that uh, SpaceX at Boca Chica, they get attention. They get press, they get photographers, they get uh, coverage from nasaspaceflight.com. And the reason that, that those people are there is because they have an audience. And if SpaceX wants to tell a different story, maybe they should be talking a little bit more and revealing a little bit more about what goes on. And they don't. And that's why uh, the press that provides that coverage, it's kind of one-sided to some extent, I suppose. Um, I've got my own little complaints about those television feeds, but that's another story altogether. I'm glad they're there, but there's a whole other aspect to it that I'm just going to say for another time right now. I mean, every single launch webcast, no matter who it's from, has some little bit of, I don't want to say propaganda, but <laughs> has its own little bit of um, bias towards themselves, for sure. Even NASA, who doesn't really promote themselves that much, manages to promote themselves well during their webcast. SpaceX promotes themselves. ULA has all that info scrolling on the bottom of, hey, look at all these cool things this rocket has done promoting themselves. So, yeah, that that is part of it. That's why it's very interesting to see some of these alternative webcasts showing up like you were talking about, like NASA. I mean, there was at least four different feeds that you could watch for this SN11 launch, and you're going to get four different opinions. Obviously, in the moment, it's, oh, wow, this is crazy. But then once that explosion hit, you got a whole different world of um, of responses from people to oh, okay, it's just a test to this is catastrophic to what in the world has happened to why did they launch all the entire spectrum across four different webcasts. 
My, uh, you touched on on one of my gripes, Sawyer, uh, is 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 that Chiron on the bottom, and if you look at it on on some of those feeds, what what it's all about, it's uh, well, I'll save it for another show. I just figured I'd put in my two cents there for this show, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'll save that for another show, for another time. And again, that's just, a whole different can of worms. <laughs> and just of note, I do work in local news media for the day job. I am a news producer, so I, I do have a little bit more of an insight when it comes to television production, including webcast production. So that that is just my disclaimer, similar to Mark's, of I'm not... A, you know, working for any of these companies, but I do have at least enough of a background to understand what's going on behind the scenes with some of these webcasts. And me, I'm just an idiot with a microphone. So, <laughs> aren't all of us? Yeah. I don't know why they gave us these microphones 12 years ago and let us keep talking, but yeah, it's 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 dangerous. But <laughs> let us proceed. <laughs> And I think that is the perfect place to bring this episode to its conclusion. A uh, little, <laughs> I'm sure there will be some contention. And of course, you know, you can reach any of us on our social media platforms. You can also reach us at the main Twitter account at Talking Space or uh, reach out to any of our personal ones, the NASA man at GeneJM29 at Mark Ratterman. So you've got, uh, you've got options to reach us and feel free to reach out with your comments after the show. We love to read them. Uh, But in the meantime, I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And um, just a shout out. I I wish there were were really a handful of folks uh, this this past week that reached out to yours truly and basically who were saying they were catching up on on the show uh, to to those who had reached out to me either through Twitter or through um, other sources and, and said that you know, we're continuing to to provide really good content, and we're continuing to provide what uh, you folks are looking for. Thank you for doing so. Thanks for hanging in there with us. I know we're we're, we're trying to uh, get more content out there. Life has been interesting of late for everybody. Um, but again, um, I want to say thank you for your kind words, and we'll continue to work hard to get some more content to you and more of our insight here. And uh, I, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm quite humbled by the reaction everybody's had. So, um, again, thank you to, to all of you that have that either have, have downloaded the show or downloaded this episode or any other episode or have reached out to either myself, Sawyer, or Mark, or Kat and basically said, hey, I heard, heard what you said on the podcast. So, again... Thank you so much. Keep listening because you folks are the reason why we do this. Exactly. We may not be posting every week like we did in the early days, but our goal is at least one episode a month. And hopefully you guys like our slightly newer format of uh, slightly longer episodes as well. So that way we can get in even more topics, even though we may not be on as much. And hopefully you guys appreciate uh, listening. And we appreciate you for joining us. We also appreciate Mark Ratterman for joining us. So thank you, Mark. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and a good time was had by all. Oh, indeed. 
Oh, that uh, I I can't top that. So all I'm going to say is thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Feel better, cat. Cat.